my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Today's interview is with Sean Wallace, director of Arc of Triumph Arts Health Organization. He's also the founder of Queer Head Doctors. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Eric. It's nice to be here. It's great to meet you, and thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I found out about your project online, and I just thought, wow, what a great idea. So I just wanted to be a part of it. This is a new community for me, and I think one of the gifts of social media, especially for me being outside of my home country, is being able to meet people like you. So, yeah, it's really cool. Oh, fantastic. Well, likewise. Yeah. So to kind of center us where we're at right now, how are you feeling in this moment? You know, today has been an extraordinary day for me. I have been working on a project where head doctors, and it was because of my frustration with finding therapy that was culturally affirmative in the LGBT sector in London. And today I finally got to the point where I could speak to some commissioners in the borough that I live in, which is a very powerful borough in terms of its delivery of services. I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with the borough of Camden, Camden Town. It's where Amy Winehouse lived and it's, it's got a lot of interesting history with the arts and interestingly it's where the Bloomsbury set is in the borough of Camden. And I'm feeling that things are dovetailing in the right way after a lot of frustration. Now you mentioned affirmative. What do you mean by that in connection to therapy? What I have discovered in my years of going through counselling is that when one is in a vulnerable position, we don't always have the ability to kind of advocate on our behalf where it comes to the services which we already know are strained. And a lot of the counsellors that they have is funded by the NHS. It's free, well, through your taxes, you pay for it. Being that we're in London, it's a very multicultural city. I found it extraordinary that there wasn't more black and brown counsellors when I went to access therapy. And the reason why I think that's important, because some people say, well, surely it's about the chemistry and everything is, and it absolutely is. And I have had white counsellors that have been fantastic. However, there are things that, when it comes to the intersection of race and sexuality, that it is nice to have somebody who can affirm your whole existence without you having to explain. I have found that you end up educating them, dealing with the post-trauma of Black Lives Matter and anxiety with COVID and so on. I want to feel that somebody understands my life experience. And so that's what the battle is for to understand that the employment of black and brown counsellors is very key for people who are at the intersection of race and sexuality. Mm. 
Thank you for that, because I know outside of our community, the collective LGBTQ plus community, I've had to explain to people that although we are a community collectively, there's still subcategories and race is one of them. We do come with our culture and our ethnic backgrounds. And that's a bonus and a plus to have. I think it is to have the richness of your culture and your sexuality. And it's good to match with people who also have that because I think you can take it to a different place. And again, in the world that we're in now, where there's an explosion of identity and identity affiliation post Black Lives Matter, where we have seen in the LGBT movements, um, I'm referring to something that happened recently in Pride of London, where the highest ranking official who was Black, he left because he felt that there was no understanding of the issues that Black and Brown people are presented with. So there's a heightened sense of we need people who understand our experiences. And simultaneously, there are a lot of organizations coming up who could do with a bit of support. So hopefully with Queer Head Doctors, I can match because I have the air of the commissioners now, and it took me a long time and look, it's just the beginning, but at least I can match people because we with the lived experience, we know the people, <laughs> basically. We deserve to be employed. Our employment is necessary in terms of the whole cycle of combating the inequity that we know exists. Um, unfortunately, it's not always the case because some people feel that it's something that they want to protect. Now to backtrack a little, what is your educational background? I went to a performing arts school in London. I mean, I'm sure you'll ask me about my family at some point, but I had a very strong and supportive family. But still, I felt that I needed to go out in the world and find myself because you don't get that in a heterosexual household. You know, if you're gay, you want to find yourself and your, right. and your surrogate family. And it was then that I thought, well, there's not much to this without education. <laughs> so I did the access call and then I, I went on to do a BA in communications and media studies. And what I always say is that I was so happy to do that at the time where it was queer ideologies were emerging. And there's a very key scholar who influenced a lot of people of my generation of the 90s, and that's Stuart Hall, Professor Stuart Hall. And he presented lots of ideas which were basically what we would say decolonialization now. I would say he's one of the forefathers of that. And that was when I really flourished. I could do a lot of things about identity, because like I said, that was emerging as a topic, gender studies. And so I decided to delve into what it meant to be a black gay man. And I did a lot of writing on that. And then many years later, I did a master's in art policy and management. Can you tell me a little bit about the Arc of Triumph and how that project came about? In order for me to do that, I've kind of probably got to go a little bit more back into how I arrived back in London. Okay. So I'm going to cover that a bit, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Um, once I graduated with my master's, I decided to go to Nigeria and start working at the family business, which was interior design in Abuja. Um, my mother was there, stepfather was there, and I'm half Nigerian, half Jamaican. And so I found myself in this new city, Abuja, which was and is very beautiful. It was modeled on LA and it has a kind of rolling landscape, the hills and so on. 
very green and I loved it. And I was really kind of Eurocentric before. So when I went there, it was very much an eye opener. I worked in my mother's show and then I branched out doing arts things because I noticed how wonderful contemporary African art was. And all I'd ever heard of was more of the ancient art or the, what we call antiquities and so on. I was like, wow, look at all this contemporary stuff, which you didn't really see in London in the 90s. So I had this big old grand idea that I was going to really champion contemporary African art and I got money from the bank and I thought that I was really onto something. However, any art business is very difficult to to get going, especially when you've got to kind of promote it and give it a platform as well. So what happened as a result of me losing money, because I brought stuff in from contemporary art from Nigeria to London, I set up this event called Narrativity, which was a pop-up before pop-ups really became known. And I just went to venues and said, can I just have it for two days and do an exhibition and an event and, you know, and a launch and all of that all at one. And so that was good. And I did about three of them and it was really nice. And the whole idea was to connect the motherland with the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And I was flourishing because I had found out so much more about myself by going to Africa and going to Nigeria in particular. Before 1999, I'd never been. And that was incidentally when it became democratic because before then it had military rule. Um, I continued to do that. And then I thought, you know what? I need to branch out a bit. And just because of being kind of known for being in the arts, I was asked eventually to do more art stuff. And it just kind of snowballed, you know, as these things do. And at the same time, I was offered a role in a school, a major school there, which is a British private elite school, really, to do their arts program and, you know, lead the arts department. Mm -hmm. And that was two years and it taught me a lot. I was working with children, it was wonderful. It was in Nigeria. It was when Obama just became president. So it was so lovely, this black man in America, I could teach them from my diaspora perspective how important it was. That mattered to me. And then things came to a head in 2014, because that was when the same-sex marriage prevention law was ratified. in. This is in Nigeria. That's correct. While I was flying under the radar, all of that time I had wonderful relationships. Some of my most profound relationships were in Nigeria with people I'll always remember. It was very much where you would know people, you'd be invited to parties. It was underground. It worked. There was no public displays of anything and so on. And because almost it was like going back in the closet for me because I'd been out in England, I quite liked it because it was a bit of a novelty. The relationships I had, people were very protective. Actually, it brought a richness to our relationships, I found. Well, with mine, anyway, I'll speak for myself. Um, But then when the same-sex marriage prevention law came in, I think it was a little bit too much for me because I couldn't really reconcile my life, the majority of it being out, accepted by my parents. I'm a visible gay man as well. So it's all of those currents that I had to deal with, and psychologically, I just couldn't. So I decided to come back to London. When I came back to London, to answer your question, (laughs) I'm a Cancerian, I tend to go round things. No, no, just hearing the backstory, (laughs) I think is helpful too. Thank you. Um, Nigeria is a very wealthy place. It's oil money. If you have the right connections, and I did, and if your family is a certain privilege, which mine are, I had access there that I would not have had here. There's no doubt. 
So for me, this was really painful because I really wanted to continue. And the problem is with these laws that when they impose them is that it opens the door to blackmail and it opens the door to all manner of kind of corrupt behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really want to do more work with African agencies who are helping people who need it because my heart's there and I know the struggle that they have. Mm -hmm. So coming back to London was difficult for me, but nevertheless, it was what was supposed to happen. And by this stage, also going back to the arts, I already knew that contemporary African art in London was really now beginning to thrive. So in essence, I think with me, I'm a bit of a, um, I'm a creative nomad. I like to move to different things and take it all in. And I just knew that I wasn't going to go back to the art. So what could I do? And then it made sense that I would be involved in some form of activism or mobilization because of my experiences in Nigeria and because of my knowledge here. Mm-hmm. So I set up Arc of Triumph after working at one of the biggest LGBT organizations for people over 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and they cater to the needs of them. And these are the wonderful things that I came back to. And I set up Arc of Triumph, and the idea was to give more representation and focus on the heritage of black and brown queer people. And in 2017, it was the celebration of the repeal of the Homosexual Act in England. (laughs) I was tasked with doing an event in Brixton. Now, Brixton, historically, has also had a lot of movements like Camden and very much a black gay presence there. I saw that a lot of the projects that were being promoted weren't focusing on black and brown queer history in the UK in that year. So I did three Brixton stories, which had three notable figures that I interviewed. Um, And from there, the idea came to me, Arc of Triumph. And then I continued to build it. And that's how it started. I was just writing down some notes here because I was actually here last summer in London and I was looking for black LGBT history and I was only there for a short time, but I couldn't really find anything. So to hear that you were pulling that out and showcasing that and finding people to interview, I think that's really great. There is the rainbow that we see publicly in brochures, but I will be the first to say that I believe collectively and in, in the world, we're still starving for that particular history. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's not that it's not there. And I must say, there is a book called Black and Gay in the UK. Yes, I've read that one, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that would be a good starting point. And then key names like Rotimi Fanny Kayade, who is an artist who worked here in the 80s. And he's somebody that every Black queer person should know. And there's so many. I mean, you might want to put some in the links for this talk. I could yes, help of you course. With that, you Thank know? you. Yeah. I wanted to touch on, too, when you talked about Nigeria and contemporary art, I think at least coming from an American perspective that when we hear of Africa, when we hear of particular countries, they don't talk enough about that these countries are still thriving, breathing countries. It's not about the past. So to hear that there's this contemporary art that is known, that is thriving, that is being made, that's good to hear, too. And then also about Nigeria, which I've heard before is a very rich country. That's a, something I'm going to say more because, again, that's a thing that at least coming from the U.S. that we don't hear enough of is that these countries in Africa are not only what we see in media, unfortunately, too much of. 
I've been to New York many years ago. I've lived there for a while. I've been to Miami. Mm -hmm. What I find is, and no offense, but people tend to be quite insular in terms of their way of thinking. I agree. And I think that actually, if we're going to look at things in the way that the media represents things, I don't think any black person would want to go to America right now, certainly not a black man. And honestly speaking, you have so many key Nigerian and other African people in the States who are running things, as we'd say, in Jamaica. So you've got it on your doorstep. I think it's a lot to do with some of the ways we've been fed to believe and that bolsters anti-blackness and that has become a very deeply embedded thing in our mindsets that we must challenge. Well said. I always describe America. I first left when I was just under 18. I went on a school trip to London and I always describe America as a big island. Even me being here in Europe for a year and a half, I do still get questions from people that I try to find humor in it, but you know, oh my God, how is it being a black person in Europe? And I said, well, there's some similarities I see, but you need to leave. You need to come out and find out for yourself because there's so much out there that we don't get taught or told in the media about black people in particular outside of America. People have vested interests and the media is biased in many ways. And what I do feel is that there are avenues for connection like what you're doing, which is why I reached out to you because when I did my master's, my dissertation was on how the internet would connect the diaspora for marketing, for commercial reasons, for all of this. And I remember at the time, I really wanted desperately to go to San Francisco to work at the Museum of the African Diaspora. Mm. It was very me, and also I like the idea of being in San Francisco. Being Jamaican and being Nigerian and being in Britain, you know, it's kind of fundamental to my understanding of the world. And I also think being non-binary, because okay. I think non-binary people think in a particular way. You don't have to be non-binary to think that way, but I think that we do not think in binaries. You know, I like the idea of all that collaboration and, like I said, being a creative nomad. I love the idea of the diaspora and using the digital technology to make links and to make money. I like that term, creative nomad. I'm gonna have to remember that one. <laughs> so you mentioned Brixton, you mentioned Camden. Are you originally from London? I was born and bred and buttered here. Okay. So what was that like for you growing up in London? The same as anywhere else when you're a minoritized figure. I mean, that's socially. My mother is from the Windrush generation. Do you know about the Windrush generation? A little bit, yeah. Could tell us a little bit more. That would be helpful, yeah. Well, that would have been a major wave of immigration from the West Indies in the late 50s, early 60s, actually mid-40s onwards, post-war, let's say. And they really were invited to come and help with the war effort, to rebuild the country after the war. And being that Jamaica was a, what's it called? It's not colony, I can't remember the word, but anyway, it was part of the British Empire. Why you'll find so many black and brown people working in the public services is because those were the systems put in place post-war, like the transport system, like the National Health Service, and so on. I've spoken to people of my mother's generation, not necessarily my family, but people of my mother's generation, who said they did not experience some of the things that people often talk about, like not being able to get accommodation, having problems with work, people abusing them in the street, which did happen, yes, 
there are people who didn't have those experiences and there are people who did. And the major narrative really are the people who did have those experiences where you'd go to a home and the famous thing is no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. It's a good symbolic reference to the kind of mentality and racism and the way that we were dehumanized. Growing up in the 70s, I remember on one occasion, uh, I was coming home on the train and I remember these National Front, which is like the EDL, which is an organization that believes in white supremacy and also don't want immigration. I was in the train station and they were marching and I just remember running and running through that station to get on the train because I was so afraid because they were shouting slurs. Yeah. And, you know, being black and gay, which is why I think we really need to put a focus on the intersection because sometimes I don't know whether the prejudice is because of my colour or my sexuality. And when it's together, it can be pretty fierce because, you know, London is very particular. It's a multicultural city. We always lived in a population where it was mixed, Asian, African, Caribbean. That's what I know. And I think also I'm Jamaican, so that's very much a part of the fabric of the culture there, you will see. So that's really my outlook. I cannot say that I've had experiences that have been that bad. But in the last 20 years, I have been going to Nigeria a lot. And I do think that has kind of emboldened my sense of self. Have you been, by the way? No, not yet, no. Something comes alive in your spirit. It's like a belonging, a sense of belonging. It's difficult to describe, and it's actually quite spiritual. I'm not trying to say that it's utopia, but for me as a black man, it gave me an opportunity to really understand who I was. Yeah, I think I've had it difficult in some ways, but I've also had it very easy. Again, I came from a family that were very supportive of me, and that makes a big difference. You know, I know what's currently going on in the States. I've had people ask, is it as bad as that? And I said, well, that's an individual experience. There is racism for sure in America. In some ways, it's more obvious than I think anywhere in the world. But one's day-to-day life is not constant horror. (laughs) We do have moments of joy, or we learn how to find that joy for sure. I mean, I don't think it's good to always be on the back foot with this discussion because, you know, again, people need to go and see. And I think it can be quite oppressive, people bringing a kind of trauma-laid discussion to the table. I do not discuss racism with people outside of my community generally. This is for me, you understand. This is right for me. This is not a topic that I like to recycle because I feel that for me, again, everybody's different. I feel that I want to move forward from some of the trauma that we've been saturated with. Yeah. I love how this younger generation talks about trauma and our emotions underneath all of this. I think that's important. It's good to be aware, but I think you said saturated in it. I don't think it's healthy either because I don't think it brings about hope in some ways, which I think is is important. Um, I agree. You seem very measured and can tell a lot. I think I'm an artist, essentially, and I see things in a bit of an abstract way and I can see connections. And for me, I could notice that while all of this was going on with the George Floyd and everything else, everything about me was accelerating. My speech, it was just going, 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 going forward. And I don't know if that was a way of my body or my spirit just wanted to just run away from everything because my partner kept on telling me, you know, Sean, this is not like you. And it was during this time and I saw it as a mania. 
a certain form of mania. You know, with our minds, everything starts there. So there must be a point at which I say to myself, okay, I got the information now and I'm going to work in a way that is right for me to manage this information overload. I like that. So how was it you growing up in a multicultural home being Jamaican and Nigerian? I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely loved it. I mean, you must understand that I left school in 1984. I would have been 16, 17. Okay. I mean, it's so fascinating because the clubs that we went to then were also mixed. Mixed gay, straight and black, white and everything else all in one. And of course, that was just prior to the house era where it really began, the garage era. So it was a very interesting time. Also, I'm going to do a project about that. Maybe I'll come and talk about it another time, if you don't mind. No, of course. Because um, <laughs> I've got the memories and they need to go somewhere. And my mother, she's phenomenal and really a matriarchal figure. So there was intra-race racism. So Jamaicans felt a way about Nigerians or Africans, and Africans oftentimes had their views on Jamaicans, and both of them weren't nice, let's put it that way. And so being in the middle of it and growing up in this household where it was having all these alages, they're like the chieftains come to our home in their wonderful long robes and, you know, regalia and people had associated black people at the time, majority working class, and I came from a middle-class background. So I didn't have the same outlook as some of my peers, let's say. So my outlook, I would say, was a bit more broad. I didn't just think in terms of the Jamaican or the Nigerian thing, but people did. And my mother is just extraordinary. She said to me, they're exactly the same as you, Sean. Just know that, <laughs> you know, so she instilled these things in us, no matter with the Rolls Royces and all the finery and everything that I, this is my life, going to school in a Rolls Royce and so on. But she brought us down to earth all the time. And I find that that skill that a lot of women from the Jamaican culture have, the Nigerian side was a bit more lavish. You know, it was always about the parties and the money and the Owambe parties and this and that. So I was at a meeting of both. And I absolutely loved that experience because really I would say that in midst of all the 70s difficulties of growing up as a West Indian community, you had the Nigerians who came in with their attitude, which is generally one of, I'm number one, (laughs) you know. I know people might find that sometimes to be a little bit jarring, but actually we needed people like that to kind of give black people a sense of aspiration for us to connect in ways that were actually business, because a lot of business went through the Nigerians because they brought a lot of money into the country and they were spending in black businesses as well. So there's the things that people don't talk about. You know, when you have a certain mindset and a winning mindset, you're gonna go out there and you're gonna win. And that's exactly what I found from my Nigerian brothers. Business that I've done in Nigeria has just been marvelous because they have an attitude of can do. That sounds a bit on par of what I know of the Nigerian communities in the States. I'm from Arizona, which as far as a black population is small compared to other major cities, but going to places like New York in particular and seeing these thriving communities. I think it's really important. My sister has built an empire of schools in Nigeria. She's another major figure. I saw her build it from scratch, from nothing. 
And now she has built an empire with these schools and it is amazing to behold. These stories I will write about at some point because I, I think of it as being um, really important in terms of aspiration and especially with young women and young black women, what's possible and what's possible in Nigeria and other African countries. Mm. So in being gay, I asked a little bit later about Nigeria, but when did you become aware of that part of yourself in your childhood? Pretty much. I think I knew when I was five. And how was that within the family or in the community? It was more about just the idea of being different and kind of working on that. And that was a kind of insular process. I was very, I'd say, visible at that age. And I think gender is constructed and we fluctuate between both. And especially when you're younger, um, in my view. So it was when it becomes hormonal at so 14 and then you want to practice or you at least want to explore or you would want to know more about, you know. And when I was at a certain age, became a parent. Oh, this is over the age of 18 now. And as in most families, it's not really discussed until you're ready to discuss it yourself. It wasn't something that I needed to confront. And so my mother asked me when I was about 19. I just said no. And then she said, you know, well, if you think you are, if you ever want to speak to somebody, just let me know. Oh, that's amazing. I absolutely believe it's a blessing. And I think that's why it's such an important part of me knowing that I have that blessing. I like how you, from the beginning, talked about the intersection of race and our sexual orientation. And then also with purpose, can you talk a little bit about queer head doctors? I like that name. <laughs> so when an idea comes to me, I know that there is a purpose behind it. Like when I did Narrativity, which was the event I did when I started to import the contemporary African art to England to do the event. And I called it Narrativity because it was narrative, a story. Tiv, which is an African tribe known for their warrior-like abilities and graffiti so i always had a purpose to my work the queer head doctor came about just one day just i was thinking about things and then it came and i thought oh i like the play on words and i decided that i wanted to start doing some advocacy actually you know what i didn't decide i think in life sometimes you're called to do things and if you listen you'll follow i was literally one day going to this hub that I used to go to in Euston Road. And I was going there regularly to do coaching and various things. And then one of the people there said to me, they are having a LGBTQ Health Matters forum, and it's about mental health. Actually, I was already going to the Welcome Building, which is a famous philanthropic organization. They've got this huge premises on Euston Road, and I'd go there because it's a medical place. You can do medical research there. And so they have a library upstairs, and I was going there regularly. And I started to do research into the mental health of black gay men in the UK. And what I found was that there was nothing <laughs> recorded, even statistics. There were reports about HIV, sexual health, but not about mental health. This is very recent. There's nothing. At all. To be clear, there's stuff on sexual health, not mental health for black gay men in the UK. Now, at the time, mental health was still kind of coming through this phase where it was still stigmatized. People didn't really want to talk about it. So going to a place like that was really important because I couldn't really go anywhere else. This was the place to go to for medical research. I mean, it absolutely is. So I was lucky enough to live five minutes up the road from it. So I'd be going there every day. And I really want to share this story because I think we have to listen to our heart and signs. I'm a big one for signs, yeah? I didn't really see it as an advocacy thing. 
I just thought, well, I can do this. So that was the idea. But when he said that, I said, okay, I'll go. He said it to me in such an earnest way. I knew that was a sign, the way he said it to me, Sean, I think you should go. And you know, sometimes when people say things silently and in a certain way, you're kind of taken aback because he's a heterosexual man. He's a heterosexual black man. I didn't even think he would even know about that. Not being stereotypical, but I just didn't think it would be something that he'd take on board. But he was like, Sean, I want you to do this. You can do this. And I listened. And then one day I was in bed, I got up and I went into the lounge and I turned on the TV and what should I see? but this report from Stonewall talking about the how mental health of black and brown LGBTQ people are being affected because of racism in the LGBT world. Now, this was a significant report by Stonewall. Mm. I read, reviewed the report. I did a statement. I went to the place, spoke in the question and answer session. I wasn't invited, I was just part of the audience, you know, all that. But I knew that I had to make a statement at this thing. And when I finished, everybody in that room applauded. It wasn't about the applause, it was about the acknowledgement that what I'm saying clearly struck a chord with all of these people in this room. They knew that this is something that we don't talk about, that's something that is kind of forbidden to talk about, because you can't really talk about race here in England sometimes. Well, prior to what's happened with Black Lives Matter anyway, it was not something that people really wanted to talk about, neither black or white or whoever. But where you're talking about deconstructing the fabric of racism, you have to go into the nitty gritty and talk about actual what things are that are affecting things. You have to do that because anything that you're going to heal from, you have to go to the root. That response kind of bolstered me. And I don't know if I'm an activist. I just think that I'm an advocate. I don't have a degree in psychology, but it just started ramp up. And that's what happened, basically. And now we're at the point where I'm speaking to commissioners. So it matters to listen to your calling. You don't always have to be from that profession. So I incorporated Queer Head Doctor into my projects because I'm still doing arts. I'm going to publish a magazine later this year. That's my heart. I just want to do the right thing by my community. Yeah, when you reached out to me, I can still see the message on Instagram when you mentioned mental health, specifically with black and brown men. And I don't know the background, but I felt it. And I think I felt it because I know for myself and my own personal experience, there's a need for it. There's a need for it on a personal level. There's a need for it on an academic level. There's definitely a need on bringing it out more to the public so that I think collectively we can reduce the shame of it. That's exactly how it works. And if we look at the stressors that um, Black people have to face, whether they're LGBTQ or not, that alone is reason enough. You don't have to have a mental health dilemma to go for counselling. Actually, we're going to offer with Queer Head Doctor a route to coaching and a route to counselling based on an app which is going to be in development. And I'm dealing with psychologists, with IT people, with boards, with Mind England, which is the biggest charity. So I cannot just have you concentrate on my queerness if I'm going to counselling when you don't understand my blackness. I need you to understand the whole of me. There is more attention for mental health, for mental health for men, for mental health for black and brown people. And like I said, when I was young, when I did speak to a counsellor, that changed my life. Changed my life entirely. 
I remember coming out of the first session that I had in counselling and literally skipping out of that room. I felt like I was floating. So much of the baggage had come out of me. There were things that we don't know that are going on in our mind that make us project certain things out into the world. And the world gives you what you give it. And if you're not in a good state of mind, which you're not gonna be if you've been rejected from your family, if you're rejected in the LGBT world, that's what you're gonna feel is your lot. And this is where counseling unravels that. I agree. And I feel like although the LGBT movement is what since Stonewall 50 plus years, I feel like in what you're sharing that we as black queer people, we haven't captured that yet. And so hearing stories like yours, I love how you talked about you trusted your gut, you trusted your instinct, the universe, and said, you know, there's a need for this. I, even with this podcast, it came out of frustration because being for myself here in Europe, and it's the same in the States, where I look up black queer men and the first thing that comes up usually is pornography. I was like, why? Because we are so much more than that. And I feel in the mainstream community and maybe in some ways amongst ourselves, we focus on that more than we focus on our mental health, our emotional health. I love the way you said that. I agree. You see, it's such a difficult subject because I know that when I was 20, challenging subject, it's not difficult. It's brilliant to talk and it's brilliant to talk to you because I think this in itself is a sense of therapy, to be fair, just to be able to connect with somebody who what I'm saying is not alien. I think when I was 20, I would have behaved exactly like the 25-year-old. They have now been able to do personal branding. And a lot of that personal branding, because of the internet, they're able to use it with only fans and all these different devices. And I definitely would have jumped on if I was that age. I'm definitely certain. Especially in a world that's post-AIDS, but you can have PrEP and things like that to manage. And there's um, ARVs. There was no ARVs back in the day. So all that to consider when it comes to sex. So for me, it's about understanding that your personal currency doesn't just lie in your sexuality. Can you repeat that again? Your currency? Your own personal currency and your sovereignty. Your personal sovereignty does not lie solely in your sexuality. You will only ever be a one-dimensional person if that's how you view yourself. And if you view yourself that way, you will view other black gay men that way too, because that's just the way it is. I never did. And that was a lot to do with Nigeria as well, because they couldn't really be elaborate or project their sexuality so much. When we got together, we did things that were really wholesome, you know, and we really valued our humanity. But I just think they think differently anyway, because they didn't have gay liberation. Gay liberation brought a lot with it, but then it also focused a lot on gay, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think some people, you know, just think, oh, that's all I am, (laughs) you know? No, you're not. You're a human being with all of your colors and shapes and sizes and everything. So that's all I'd say. I never want to come across as somebody who's a sexual purist or something like that. I don't know, I'm not, but I just feel that I'm only ever seeing us represented by outside people, especially, and even sometimes by ourselves in that way. And I want to see more, that's all. And I want to see love as well. See, love is the fabric of it all. You touched on something that I wanted to ask when you sent me your bio yesterday about why is it that more of us aren't dating amongst each other? And Mm -hmm. do you think that's because of perceptions of self or maybe even needing therapy to kind of work through perceptions of self and desirability, not just sexually, but socially? 
Well, you've said it right there. You've answered the question yourself. And what I would say is that I look to the States to keep my mental health afloat as a Black gay man. Because first of all, there were all these great writers, Joseph Bean, you know, all of the people, the founding fathers of the movement, James Baldwin, my God, you know, all of the role models that I could find that were out there and that got publicity were from the States. So that really helped me. There was nothing here. Now, also, I think where you have communities in the States, you have them where you have, you know, community that is largely black and you grow up in this way. I think that it's a different experience than when you grow up in a multicultural setting. So where I see some of the complications is where a black man will even say, and I heard, and this broke me when I was younger, I remember being in a club and a black man stating openly, I don't sleep with black men. And he said it loudly in front of a lot of white people, almost to humiliate the circle of people that I was with. That really put a dampener on it for me because some black men were prepared to humiliate and hated themselves so much that in their quest to get the prize in their eyes, the white guy, they would try to humiliate you because it was a form of one-upmanship. I've said this in many workshops, but I've never really said it on something like this. They have to understand that they are also circulating, when they behave like that, a kind of narrative that allows racists to feel that it's okay. Mm. One of the things that I've noticed that comes up a lot is sexual racism. Even today, I was on the on the website and I saw this debate, and I have posted things about love, connections to this black artist or something on that level, something cerebral. I'm connecting people always. I did it with you. You know, I said, look, here, here you go. You know, speak to A, B, C, D, and E. That's who I am. But people don't engage with that largely. They will engage if you have anything to do with sex or sexual or racism. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can't stop the tap from flow. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, right, this is a topic for discussion. However, how come people are so invested in giving their energy into this? Because from what I can see, I love black men. I think black men are beautiful. I love all men, to be honest. I mean, I don't really discriminate. But at the end of the day, I would say that for somebody to say that they don't date within their race, but then to vocally think it's okay to say it and also to kind of replicate that kind of way of thinking is dysfunction. No, there's some similarities in the States. And you recall a story that somebody that I did think was attractive, this was years ago. And I was told, oh, he thinks you're cute, but he doesn't usually go for black guys, but he does think you're cute. It was the first time I was face to face with that. And it surprised me that he was so matter of fact about sharing that with, like you mentioned, with non-black people around and kind of like a badge of honor, it seemed like. On this debate that was going on and on and on with so many answers, I couldn't believe that I had to stop because everybody was engaging in this topic because the guy had posted about his experience of going on Grinder and how the white guy had wanted him to do a slave role play. And he wanted him to do it in a very particular way and was prepared to pay. The guy who had posted it, actually, which maybe he was going through his own trauma, because, you know, things can present in many different ways. But it was still quite jarring, not even jarring, it just made me sit up when he said, I think it's important to listen to somebody else's perspective. You this is the guy your... who was asked to perform? Yeah. Okay. Yes. This is energy that you could give to finding yourself a man that really wants you for you. 
I just think that this is a phenomenon. I don't see it happening in any other group. I feel that there are reasons why. Mm. I think there might be some in the brown community as well, actually, but it's very marked in the black community, as you said here and in the States and probably other places too. Whether it's sensitive or not, it needs to be said. A lot of black gay men are single. Where we're in groups where we are together, what is a barrier to us taking it maybe further and developing relationships? And that's the crux of it, because there's no shortage of them. There's no shortage of groups. I wanted to touch on briefly before we end, you also are a writer. How does your personal and professional life influence your writing? When I left university, I was lucky enough to get an internship at British Vogue. When I went there, they asked me to stay on because they liked my writing skills and they thought this is something, you know, I could continue doing. I think as an artist, I'm a writer. I see myself at the core as a writer. I don't think I've developed it as much as I should. You know, writing is a thing of practice. And because I've worked in education and, and galleries and all of that, it kind of wasn't necessary apart from just the administrative stuff. So I kind of lost something in me in terms of the ideas that I came up with. My master's was in art policy and management. That's why I think you saw the letter that I'd written to the mayor of London. Yes. And I understand policy. I understand how it shapes things. So that's where I see my writing kind of making a difference. And because, as you know, it aligns with what I want to do at my stage of life purpose, I'll probably more write more of a policy nature and things that are activism based. I'll write for my blogs when I get around to doing it. For Arc of Triumph, I'll do that. I made mention of my publication, Queerology, which is going to be coming out in September. I'm really excited about it because it's going to tie up all the elements that matter to me. And the key things there, the ethos is community, visibility and creativity. Those are the pillars of that. I like the idea of me being an editor so that I can really hark back to my history of working in the publication in my way. <laughs> so be here, be queer, be happy, be proud, be your authentic self. This is a journey coming to yourself. It's not actually outside, it's inside. And that's a beautiful place which I want to share with whoever's listening to this that everybody can get to. You mentioned earlier legacy and purpose. When you said those things, I didn't think of ego. I thought of how can I bring value? How can I help the people that come after me or the people with me? Because I think we're contemporaries, you know, as far as age. And yeah, the legacy is about giving back, finding purpose for oneself, but also finding ways to give that back to people. And I definitely hear that in your story and in your share today. So thank you. You're more than welcome. And I just want to say to you, I also think what you're doing is such an important thing and a legacy. I listened to both of the podcasts that you did. I loved it. It was just really good to hear that. And it's going to go from strength to strength. So thank you for doing something for the community like this. Oh, you're welcome. And as you said, it's community. So I know it's not a solo project. So, yeah. <laughs> so thank you again. And do you have any last words? I would hope that people will check out Queerology periodical when it's ready, which will not going to be until a few months anyway. And also the Queer Head Doctor project. Keep an eye on things. It's in its infancy, but just know that there is going to be people who obviously fit the criteria because it's the first time it's been done. There will be access to free mental health provision. And once again, thank you for allowing me to do this. 
Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.